This episode of Listen Frontier contains audio from police officer cameras during and after a shooting, which some might find disturbing. If you'd prefer not to hear that part of the podcast, you can skip ahead to about the five-minute mark. Chilling security footage released to News 4 on Wednesday, showing the moment 15-year-old Stavion Rodriguez dropped his weapon, then reached toward his pants, before being fatally shot by five Oklahoma City police officers and the five officers who fired their weapons, Bethany Sears, Jared Barton, Corey Adams, John Scudda, and Brad Pemberton are all now facing a first-degree manslaughter charge. Police giving him several verbal commands before you see him climb out of the drive through window, lifting his shirt and then putting his hands up before taking out a gun and dropping it. Get your no! reaches toward his back pocket before several officers open fire. Oklahoma City Police lead the state in fatal shootings and have one of the nation's highest rates. But while police say the use of deadly force is often necessary, more charges have been filed against Oklahoma City Police officers in the last 18 months than in perhaps any other time in recent history. Recently, five Oklahoma City Police officers were charged with first-degree manslaughter in the fatal shooting of Stavian Rodriguez, a 15-year-old robbery suspect who was killed by police after he had placed his gun on the ground outside a convenience store. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder, and on this episode of Listen Frontier, I speak with Dylan Goforth, the Frontier's editor-in-chief who has written extensively about police shootings and the rise in charges against officers. He talks with me about recent cases and his conversation with the district attorney about why recent shootings have been charged, while those in previous years have not. So Dylan, to start with, can you can you walk us through the Stavian Rodriguez case and what what have we learned with the release of uh, body camera footage from Oklahoma City Police? Stavian Rodriguez was shot and killed in November by Oklahoma City Police, and there were um, pretty instantly there were sort of like you know there were protests and there were sort of cries for justice because he was a 15 year old. Um, that, you know, the allegation was that he was involved in an armed robbery at sort of a little convenience store. Um, police arrived and there was a not, I guess, not necessarily a standoff, but just sort of like he was inside and not coming out. More and more officers are arriving outside. Um, there was video, there was cell phone video of the shooting itself, um, but it was so far away that it was kind of impossible to tell um, what what really happened, what really transpired. Uh, but he was shot and killed. There were, uh, you know, many, many gunshots, many officers fired at the same time. And there were allegations as, as soon as it happened that um, that it was unjustified, you know, and that I, I think his age probably played a role in that, maybe his race to, you know, 15-year-old white kid. Um, but at the time, it was really impossible to know. And so, you know, how these things go is you can request the body camera footage. A lot of times you don't get it until the DA has made a decision to just to rule it justified or unjustified. So, um, you know, here in the last month, 
the district attorney in Oklahoma County, David Prater, um, announced that he had charged five officers with uh, manslaughter for uh, shooting Rodriguez. And what made that um, clear and the charge clear why it happened was that the body camera footage was released. It showed him from multiple perspectives, because there's so many police officers on the scene, it showed him coming out of the gas station, being ordered to put the gun on the ground, you know. He did have a handgun. He put it on the ground, began to lay down, for some reason reached uh, for his back pocket. I think there was a cell phone back there, maybe. Show us your hands, sir. Yeah. Nobody has to get hurt. Show us your hands. Oh, don't do that. Get down. Get down. And uh, when he did that, he was shot and killed. You too. Go up. I got and so Prater charged uh, five officers of manslaughter for that. So that's, you know, already that's, you know, you'll go through year, two years, three years about that many officers being charged with the shooting, you know, over the entire time frame. So for it to happen all at once was really, you know, sort of a new development. And, um, you know, I've talked to, the, to Prater since then. And one of the things that he's talked about is how body camera footage, um, because it tells often more and shows more than just the shooting itself. It shows what, what led up to it um, from multiple perspectives. I mean, like, I think they released seven or eight um, different versions, uh, different um, footages, different views, you know, of what happened. There's so many officers were on the scene. He gets a fuller picture, he said, of what happened. And it's something that sort of more informs his uh, decision on whether to charge or not. So yeah. that happened um, right after the Benny Edwards case where they charged Prater charged another officer with manslaughter. So you, you had kind of right back to back um, all these uh, these shootings and then these charges and um, it just sort of a new development for people who follow sort of police violence in Oklahoma. Let's step back and, and talk about the Oklahoma City Police Department and their history with fatal shootings. And, you know, last summer, you know, following the death of George Floyd, uh, you know, we saw a renewed focus on on police shootings and uh, a lot of people here in Oklahoma were pointing to the website mappingpoliceviolence.org, which reported that Oklahoma City Police at the time had killed 48 people since 2013. The numbers gone up, including with with uh, Stavion. Um, that's the second highest rate in the nation, you know, based on the per, per capita city population. Now, I remember at the time the police chief had said that that the site and their data was, he called it extremely flawed and said that his department had found that it wasn't accurate. And I will say that our reporting, you know, looking at every case showed that it, it was accurate and we never heard back from the police department on their specific allegations of where that data was flawed. So from, from all accounts, Oklahoma City Police not only lead the state um, in, in the shooting rate, but are, are some of the highest in the nation. Um, any any indi indication on, on why that might be here? I mean, I, that was one of the things that I, I've tried to get into um, in this story that I'm working on. And um, the, F, you know, the FOP in Oklahoma City have not responded to me or to the questions. Um, the, the police department itself, when I asked them, I got like a one sentence response um, that wasn't, you know, specifically an answer to any of the questions that I asked, but just was like, we're trying to every day improve, you know, what we're doing and dealing with mental health and things like that. So, um, you know, there that is the question is, is it just because 
it's the largest metro area in the state. It's the largest police force, the most sort of interactions with people. I mean, I guess you would expect maybe if you looked at Oklahoma as a whole, that Oklahoma City would have the most. But um, when you, like you said, zoom out nationwide and they're still at the top of the you know pile nationwide, it does make you wonder what what is going on. I mean, one thing that I've learned through tracking these police shootings for you know for now three plus years is um, that often it's a mix of a volatile situation for some reason between a citizen, the cops, and there's a gun involved. You know that often is what I, you know. With, with if you look at the Stavian Rodriguez case. Um, if if they were being told that he was, you know, robbing the convenience store but didn't have a firearm, maybe things are different. I mean, Oklahoma is a place where there are a lot of guns. Um, and when those interactions between an armed person and a, and a cop happen in Oklahoma, they end up more often than in other states a lot of times um, in a shooting. I mean, I think it's, if you look at, this is something that's, every time I tell someone this, it, it surprises them. But if you look at Oklahoma, so for instance, Oklahoma last year I, um, had 20, I think 28 or 29 fatal shootings um, in 2020. And New York uh, state had I think 18 for the whole year. And you just, so it's not necessarily an excuse, I think a lot of times about, um, oh, well, there's, it's a large metro area and they, we have a lot of interactions with people. I think a lot of times it comes down to, to weapons and guns and Oklahoma has a lot of firearms and you have cops responding to calls with agitated people or people who are allegedly involved in a crime. And if there's a firearm involved, sometimes it ends in a shooting. And I think that's the common denominator a lot of times is that, is that firearm. And, um, but getting people to acknowledge that is difficult because Oklahoma is such a pro second amendment state that um, it, it does become a thing where people sort of hand wave it away sometimes and say, oh, well, it's just because, um, you know, the size of the police force, the size of the metro area. And we've seen, you know, even from the law enforcement com community before say, uh, at least they, they haven't always, you know, fully supported efforts to expand, you know, open carry or concealed carry laws, uh, you know, because police are responding to situations. And if you know that the likelihood of the, you know, the person having a firearm, you know, is higher maybe here. I mean, obviously that's going to dictate the, the response. You know, someone has to be at the top of the list and not every shooting, you know, obviously is unjustified. You know, this is the nature of the job, right? I mean, you're responding to some of the most dangerous situations. And, you know, and a gun is a way for a police officer to protect themselves. And we've seen several cases where that, you know, even just watching the police camera footage, it seems that that, that was extremely justified. And we've seen police officers lose their lives, obviously, recently. You know, we haven't always seen these charges come. And so I think that's what obviously makes the Stavian Rodriguez case interesting. Um, you know, there's another recent case here in Oklahoma City, uh, a man, Benny Edwards, that was killed by Oklahoma City police, uh, where an officer was charged. Um, you know, I'm sure the, the district attorney will say that, you know, that, you know, we judge these just on each individual case. And it just so happens that these cases, we feel like that, you know, protocols was, weren't followed. Is, is that the sense or is there or do you get the sense that maybe there is more scrutiny on police shootings now? When I asked uh, Prager that question, he that's what that was his answer was I look at all these individually, um, you know, and they're all judged on their own merits. And uh, sometimes I it's hard to 
Um, it's hard to tell because there are, I mean, you can go back a year, two years and see cases where, you know, not that I'm a lawyer, but that, you know, I've looked at police reports and body camera footage and, and you say, why is this one, if this one's charged, how is this one not charged? You know, and it's, I think a lot of people are having that um, discussion now um, about, you know, why are these, these charges are being filed now um, but why not last year or the year before? I mean, why, you know, why it's a new development to see this many um, charges filed on police officers. And um, so people are, are asking that question. I talked to an attorney who represents, honestly, most of the police officers in the state, uh, either criminally or civilly um, after a shooting. And he had the opposite perspective. I mean, he definitely said that he feels like there's some new layer of um, scrutiny on uh, on police interactions with with the public and with citizens, and not just you know you've heard attorneys uh, for officers complain uh, in the past about public scrutiny, you know, and and citizen groups and uh, you know Black Lives Matter protests and things like that, but never about a DA and the scrutiny from the district attorney on these shootings because the charges were just very very rarely uh, filed. And um, this attorney's name's uh, Gary James. He he told me that he will go to the scene, you know, often of a police shooting um, and find, you know, emotional police officers now worried that they're going to, to be charged with the crime. Whereas in the past, it was more of a, you know, a by the book um, re response from the officer of, okay, a shooting happened. Um, here's my, you know, my firearm. I'm on leave for a while. I'll come make a statement in a few days. Said people are, there's now a, a fear from officers that um, they're going to face, you know, criminal charges and some, you know, retribution for what happened. And, um, you know, I had talked to Prater about that and he said, well, that's probably um, a good thing. The only officers who have anything to fear are ones who have done something wrong and uh, an officer who's done something wrong should have something to fear. And so it's, you know, I, I think that's, that's the question is whether these because um, it's not just Benny Edwards and Steven Rodriguez. I mean, there have been other charges filed against officers in the last year or so. Um, the question, I guess, is whether this is a a new trend or if this is just a sort of one time, you know, two maybe egregious shootings that uh, the DA felt he had to, to file charges on. I mean, I don't think, honestly, if you asked me a year ago, hey, what's who's the most likely district attorney to file six manslaughter charges on police officers, I would not have picked you know, David Brayer to be the answer. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this carries on. I mean, if we are in a year from now having the same conversation about, you know, continuing charges against officers, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, if that's what happens. And, you know, like we said earlier, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of attention and, um, and activism following the death of George Floyd. And we saw that in every city. And I don't know, I don't know what that looks like, you know, several months later now in, in most cities, but I know here in Oklahoma City, it does feel like the that spirit has has continued, you know, maybe longer than I even expected it to. We've just seen kind of a rise in activism, whether it's, you know, focused on um, county government and the, the county jail here um, or these recent, you know, police shootings. We've seen, you know, the mobilization of demonstrations around, um, you know, the shootings of Edwards and Rodriguez in a way that. I don't remember quite as much in years past. And so whether or not Prater's charges were influenced by that kind of activism or not, 
it does seem like we have seen kind of an increase in, in that type of, of political mobilization, at least here in Oklahoma City, and maybe there in Tulsa as well. Sure. And I think it's, you know, often it's um, there, you know, Oklahoma, just as a you know baseline, is a very heavily incarcerated state. And so I think it all starts from there, this sort of realization that there is a lot of um, police presence and um, jails and prisons. And, um, you know, in Tulsa, we had, um, we do a tax package, I guess, sort of similar to like the maps thing uh, every once in a while. And it, it's what built the BOK Center downtown, sort of revitalized downtown. And it was, a, that was the big ticket item. And then when they did it again, whenever it was four or five years ago, another, uh, it's called Vision, when they did another Vision package, uh, like $200 million paid for police. You know, I mean, it, there was no BOK center this time. That money went to police officers. And so like in Tulsa, people are very aware of, of um, you know, that police presence and, and police interactions. And I think that people, you know, when someone is shot now, there is video often of that person. You can see that video. Um, you see the family members, you see the jails and the prisons, and there are these symbols that people can get behind them. I, I think it helps mobilize and sort of like coalesce that um, that public interest in each shooting or just in criminal justice itself, because there is a building to protest outside of, there is a picture to hold up, there is a video to watch. And I don't think that this, I don't think this kind of thing will go away. I mean, I know in Tulsa, um, for instance, the, the first large scale um, you know, protest or, or interest in a police shooting that I remember was the uh, Eric Harris shooting in 2015. And it involved a bunch of sheriff's office corruption and I mean, all kinds of things, but there were massive protests outside uh, the sheriff's office, you know, for, for weeks or months. And that's what the George Floyd protests here in Tulsa reminded me of this summer was that, I mean, it was very similar. Crowds of people young people holding signs, walking the same paths through downtown, outside of the jail, outside of the police station. Um, it was all very similar. And I think that when there are um, shootings like this that that um, that get a lot of public attention, that will happen. I mean, I think that's just a standard course of action now because um, people have seen even results. I mean, the protests from the Eric Harris shooting in 2015, that you know, not that the protests themselves were responsible, but they were part of a movement that led to a sheriff um, being convicted and removed from office and uh, the uh, deputy who shot Eric Harris being charged with a crime and convicted and sent to prison. And I think uh, that people saw that as a success, you know, as part of that movement, that was the success of that part. And they, um, when there is something similar in the future, they will do that again because they know that it, it worked for them the last time. Uh, and so I don't think that will go away until, you know, who knows, until we figure out um, what's causing there to be so many in Oklahoma. I mean, you talked about per capita shooting rates in um, Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma as a whole, if you look at their, the fatal shootings, um, last year, they, I think there was a, a drop probably attributed to the lockdown. The, uh, Oklahoma last year was eighth per capita in the nation in fatal police shootings. And the years before that were third and fourth. You know, so the state as a whole ranks high, and there, if that's going to continue, then there will be more of these cases where um, public interest sort of gets behind what happened and who is responsible. And you make a good point when you talk about just the increase in filming. Obviously, you know, bystanders, you know, with with phone video has has been on the rise over the last several years, but body camera footage, and that's you know, the the footage that we we've, we've seen in recent cases wouldn't have existed here, uh, you know, five years ago. It was kind of in the um, 
in the aftermath of Ferguson, another kind of national reckoning um, around, uh, you know, police shootings that, uh, you know, kind of spurred the conversation here in Oklahoma City to adopt a body camera, you know, program, which a few, a few years later was launched. And so that's something that's, that's relatively new. Yeah, the body camera thing, I think, is particularly interesting because when they first began to, there were, when there first began to be calls for, you know, the police departments need their officers to have body cameras. The police departments themselves, if you ask them, they would say, we're in favor of it because it's going to give a, an impartial view of, of this interaction, right? So if, if Joe police officer is having an interaction with, you know, Joe citizen, and then the next day, the citizen files, you know, a, a complaint about that officer, uh, a lot of times it's just a he said, he said kind of thing. And so they would say, no, well, the body camera will show, you know, what really happened. And there were, I, I mean, I remember doing stories about, you know, as the departments would sort of start to roll out the body cameras where they would say, hey, we had this incident on this day, this person made this complaint against our officer, we'd be the body camera and found that it was, you know, uh, that what that person said happened didn't happen and and so we're glad that we don't have to you know deal with this for months and months because we can just show the video and, and prove it didn't happen but by the same token now i mean that was one of the things that prater said was that he gets to look at these body cameras that show him the full interaction you know i mean like the stavian rodriguez case was not just a 20 second video of him being shot which you can sort of put into whatever context you want to put that into it showed the 30 minutes leading up to it and everything that happened. It showed very clearly him coming out and what he did as he was exiting that building and what the officers did. And, um, you know, so by that same token here, the body camera footage is, is helping lead to more officers being charged um, with these shootings. And so, um, I, you know, personally, that's part of what I'm interested in. I mean, I think the body cameras are so, um, they're everywhere now and that, you know, about department tried to do away with them, I think there would be uh, pushback uh, against that. But I mean, I'm interested to see um, what the reaction within these police departments is toward body camera footage, if it starts to be used to hold them more responsible for what they do, uh, you know, in, in these interactions. We already see all the time, uh, you know, you, you get a, a body camera video and you'll hear officers saying, hey, turn your, turn the camera off, or, or you'll see them muting um, their camera so they can have a, a conversation that doesn't get picked up on it, you know, and, and these little policy violations like that. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if there's, if there's more of those um, as officers become aware that, hey, these are being used not just for us, but, but against us now. You know, charges are one thing, um, you know, convictions are another. It'll be interesting to see what that asp- what that part of the justice system looks like. You know, we don't always see, you know, there's there's been few charges, so there's obviously few of those opportunities. It'll be interesting to see uh, you know, what that process looks like as well, moving forward. Yeah, that's another thing, um, because it is hard. I mean, every, you know, I've covered these trials before, and you do hear, um, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys talk about how, hey, it's hard in Oklahoma to get 12 jurors who will convict a cop, you know, and I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, in Tulsa specifically, we did have, you know, the Eric Harris shooting in 2015, and then the Terrence Crutcher shooting the next year, where the both times resulted in officers, and officers being charged. And in the Eric Harris case, Robert Bates, the deputy who shot him, was convicted. In the Terrence Crutcher case, Betty Shelby, who, who shot Terrence Crutcher, was not convicted. And the difference in those cases was um, Betty Shelby was charged uh, with a more with a crime that carried a harsher sentence. 
And in the Robert uh, Bates, you know, his charge, it involved a bunch of corruption allegations about the sheriff's office um, that sort of helped. I think he had a, you know, he was like facing a maximum of 40 years and while she was facing a maximum of life. And the corruption case definitely helped um, prosecutors, I think, get uh, a guilty uh, verdict because it is hard to convince 12 people to, to convict a cop, you know, and send them to prison for however long. I mean, we saw Shannon Kepler in Tulsa, who was a police officer who it was not an on duty shooting, but shot and killed his uh, daughter's boyfriend. I mean, it took four trials, I think, before they finally got him um, you know, down to, you know, to, I think a, a manslaughter charge, a 10 year sentence or 12 year sentence. I mean, they had to do four, four or five trials to get to that point. So convicting a police officer is, is tough. And I mean, I think that's part of the equation of why it happens, why the charges happen so infrequently is this knowledge that like, this may be a losing case. This is a losing proposition trying to drag this out for a year, you know, and become a target of the FOP and, separate yourself from the police department all to, to lose in trial. I mean, that's a difficult proposition. And I think that's probably one reason why we don't see um, as many charges as we might otherwise. Yeah. And what's interesting about these cases is I often think the body camera footage actually becomes maybe an important piece of evidence for both sides. I mean, obviously the prosecution will show or try to show where they think that police made uh, a mistake or a miscalculation and, and using their firearm. But, we talk about the before and after, you know, and you and I have talked about this before when you watch this body camera footage, um, you know, especially for those of us who you know, aren't in law enforcement, don't have that experience. It's a very nervous experience, right? You kind of put your, yourself in the shoes of, of the police who are arriving on a scene that they don't know anything about. They see, you know, they see a weapon. And so it's easy to be, um, I guess my point is it's easy to be sympathetic sometimes for both sides. Um, and and af- in the aftermath of the shooting, you often see uh, you know, frustration on the point on the part of police officers that they had to use their weapon, uh, anguish. I mean, we've seen that in a lot of those videos. And sometimes that can be kind of a compelling piece of evidence as well, I would think, for the defense to show, you know, that this was not um, nobody wanted to see, you know, this person killed. Um, you know, police are doing their jobs and sometimes they have to make those split second decisions. So I would I would think that sometimes what's interesting is these body camera footage, you know, sometimes, you know, both sides can point to aspects of it to try to make their case. Yeah, that's the thing. Is it, you know, it gets talked about as this sort of impartial, you know, third-party view of, of what happened. But every time uh, one of these cases ends up in either criminal court or civil court, I mean, both, both like you said, both sides display the video and, and bring different things out of it. You know, I mean, I think, um, I mean, that's part of what's interesting to me about body camera footage is just sort of it's, you know, it can be viewed through different lenses as well. And it, it ultimately all comes down to, to the jury and, and who can convince them better than, than the other side. I mean, um, when these cases get to trial, it'll be interesting, you know, the Benny Edwards case. Um, the Benny Edwards case is really interesting to me because he was shot, you know, it's easy to look at that video and, from a human perspective and just say, why, you know, why was this person shot you know a mentally ill an older guy with a little knife running away um why was he shot and then if you think about it from a legal perspective it's a little uh, murkier and i i mean i hate sort of viewing these and sort of trying to remove the humanity from it but i mean if you're talking about criminal charges being filed you sort of have to because that's how you have to think about the case and there have been i mean 
you know, I can I could look through the list probably and find a dozen or more cases where um, someone was shot in the back uh, and they had a weapon and uh, the, the shooting was ruled justified because there is um, a Supreme Court decision that, I mean, it, that it does say if a, if someone is fleeing, they have a weapon and you fear they might be violent, you are justified in shooting them. And so there've been all kinds of cases, people in vehicles that have, that, um, I mean, there was a shooting the other day where a guy um, backed into a police car. They were both in their vehicles. He backed in the police car to hit it, to drive away. And the officer fires his gun uh, at him into the, into the vehicle. You know, I don't think he hit him, but um, still fired his gun at just because he hit his car. And um, obviously that one hasn't been ruled on yet, but there are lots of cases like that that are ruled justified. Um, a case where a guy uh, in Wagner County was fleeing in a vehicle from an officer, crashed the vehicle and got out and was shot. And it was real justified um, because they, you know, talked about, hey, well, there was this continuing threat of uh, of the vehicle, you know, of the guy in the vehicle. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot to think about, a lot to consider uh, whenever these do get to trial and are in the court system about, you know, it's it's one thing to view the, the videos and, and read the police records and and to talk to family members and to view it as a human. And, but when it gets into the court system, it's in, it's viewed through an entirely different lens and it's, it's sort of a different level of, of expectations and, and um, objectives from everyone. And so that will be, uh, you know, right now there, I think people are, it's in that human realm. Everyone's viewing it, at, you know, as this human angle of the victim and what happened. And, but very quickly it's going the officers will start appearing in court um, future court dates will be set and then it becomes a court case where you're you're talking about it legally and sort of remo- removing somewhat that human perspective from it. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. Today's episode included audio from KOFR and KOCO News. You can find other episodes of Listen Frontier in our podcast feed. Just search for Listen Frontier in your favorite podcast app. You can find more of the Frontier's journalism at readfrontier.org. As a nonprofit newsroom, we rely on the support of readers and listeners like you. If you value our impact journalism, I'd invite you to consider making a donation. You can find a way to do that online at readfrontier.org. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week. Mm